0: Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Matters podcast. It's the podcast about how sustainable innovation can bring you fossil-free grills, a thing that you definitely (laughs) needed. And that's not the grill you grill on outside. That's grills for your teeth. Uh, We're going to be talking a lot about grills today, but um, I'm Anthony Schiavo. I'm joined by my co hosts Mike. Hey, everybody. And Kartik. What's up? What's up? What's up is that Europeans are attempting to do culture again, uh, something that hasn't <laughs> hasn't really worked for them since, like I don't know, maybe like 1875. Um, I would have to go back and double check there. But Vattenfall, they're a sort of major Scandinavian utility company. They've released a couple different <laughs> videos, new ad campaign. One in which they partnered with a UK rapper who goes and buys uh, fossil-free grills, uh, fossil-free steel grills. So the steel is made of well, it's regular steel, but it's produced presumably via their hydrogen direct reduction of iron process. That they're they're partnered with the steel industry in that that a uh, couple couple of Swedish steel mills, I believe. And they also have um, sort of like gamer girl bathwater 2.0 with this industrial emissions spray. They partnered with uh, Cara, who's, who is this? Cara... Who Delevingne. is this person? Cara, Cara Delevingne. Delevingne. Cara Delevingne. Cara Delevingne yeah. so, so, first of all, <laughs> the way they introduce her is climate activist and model, and I kind of feel like she's more of one of those things than the other. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't know. Mike, this seemed to really get in under your skin so i'll, I'll turn it over to you first what, what is the deal here
1: i wouldn't say under my skin but i do think it's kind of fascinating we were having an interesting conversation with some of our colleagues about like sort of why are they doing this you know these these are i mean i guess technically you can go buy the the face the face mist the steel is not really a consumer product um and they're they're very kind of strange and funny ad campaigns. So I'd encourage everybody to go to go watch them. They're on the the the, the company's website. Um, it's currently the 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 if you just go to their homepage, it's like the Cardellivines the main the main banner ad there. Um, you know, and so I think it's you know part of it is. Fall is, you know, they are a utility, right? They they have customers, so even though they're not selling these these products directly. I think they see some benefit in, uh, you know, being seen by the general consumer as a as an innovative and um, and an eco friendly sort of company. And I think it's probably also, you know, being in a very highly regulated industry, it's probably politically beneficial for them to uh, to be seen that way, um, and I am sure for recruiting and things like that. Right? It's always, you know, you want your company to have a good reputation. I am um, not sure that these probably fairly expensive advertising campaigns for a product that you are not like really actually selling is 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 the <laughs> the best way to to go about that. But I. Um, you know, I think it, it does reflect sort of the, the uncertainty about that, that a lot of these companies have, and maybe the anxiety, but how are we actually going to make money off of these kind of green products because and carbon free products, because right now that's the reality is that they are more expensive. You're not going to be able to with fossil free steel or, you know, CO2 based chemicals and. And whatnot you're not going to be able to compete directly on the sort of traditional economic and performance metrics
0: i mean kartik you were saying van all, they're already like a very green you know utility so why like why even do this i guess it's just like i mean aren't they just going to like sell electricity and like government's just going to regulate out the, the emissions uh it, it, it just seems like yeah. <laughs> even even the the point you brought up like which i think is interesting mike about like this sort of idea how are we gonna actually make money it's something i've thought a lot about but it, that's really abstracted away from the utilities especially utility like Vattenfall.
2: yeah i mean for me the weirdest thing was even before we get into the energy aspect i didn't even know that face mist was a thing <laughs> like, you just wash your face with water you, I guess but what's a face a mist glow.
0: When we when we pivot to video Kartik's going to be our, our leading guy because um he's ah. just he's
2: just naturally beautiful
0: naturally skin
1: dewy yeah
0: <laughs> I
2: guess <laughs> but uh yeah uh yeah I mean Fåtanfall the name in Swedish literally means waterfall uh hydro's there um uh, I think the predominant source for energy so I don't even know why they want to promote themselves as a green company. Uh, I think they just need to focus on deploying more stuff. And even if you look at the energy mix in Europe, I think when I was doing my master's a couple of years ago, uh, I, think the, I think the two Scandinavian countries, so Norway and Sweden were sort of like already 52% green or like 48% green, something like that. And that was because they have a lot of hydro. So, and if you compare it to the Netherlands, uh, Netherlands is like at 7%. <laughs> Uh, of renewable mm-hmm. electricity generation so they don't have to prove anything you know i think this will come across more as greenwashing rather than yeah. anything else and just a very uh, it, it's just a botched up marketing ad for me you know i, I didn't even like the video personally <laughs> so
1: yeah, well we've already established you're not the target audience for the face mist so <laughs> yeah
0: Oh yeah
2: that that's much. also
1: true but uh, but yeah i think it's you know at the end of the day, it, it, these the it, or at least not at the end of the day, but at, at the day right now, uh, the time right now, so to speak, it's it, it is you know something like green steel. Uh, the success, initial success and growth of that industry is going to depend on either you know customers, the B two B customers, and ultimately consumers being willing to pay some level of of a premium for this product to be um. You know, to get to get the carbon free steel over over the the conventional one, and you know, I think this ad campaign, while it's maybe a little misguided, is you know, reflects the, the 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 questions that these companies are having about how are we actually going to make that happen.
0: I'm not like completely bought in on this idea. I I, I do think there's an assumption that these things a that they'll cost money more money which is true now and that could go away in the future but i guess a bit more broadly like you sort of see this with plastics a lot where the chemical company position is hey we have to do all this recycling or we have to build all this infrastructure to like change make our plastics more sustainable and how are we going to do that um who's going to pay us to do that basically, right? Like who, who? how are we going to get more money to cover our costs here? And the reality is like, actually the existing products, the value of those is going to drop. Like there will be a, a premium really, but it'll be more like there's a sort of assumption that the, the, the prices and the value of the existing products are going to remain static within this. So, I don't know. I am not really convinced, like like I just think a lot of these other things, especially if carbon taxes or like the carbon border adjustment mechanism in Europe yeah. comes in, like all these other things are just gonna get more expensive. Um so it's not really about like convincing anyone to pay a green premium per se. Like there will be economic damage or like economic hardship, but I always see like the distribution of that more as being a question of how it's distributed among companies by different types of public policy as opposed to like oh how do we get consumers to accept this type of like like opt into purchasing a pricier product like i don't really think that's the the mechanism there at all but i guess that brings us to our next point which is totally unrelated Fusion, <laughs> Karthik, you you had kind of flagged this up you know, when we were doing our prep, but there was a an interesting report uh, around fusion that you wanted to to talk about.
2: Yeah, so the Fusion Industry Association, which is uh let's say a conglomerate of different fusion energy pursuers, um, yeah, it's, they came it's not up much with...
0: of an industry association. You kind of uh, you you
2: sort of need an industry to do that, right? Yeah, um, it's not there yet, but. Essentially, they were highlighting some of the challenges uh, that, you know, the uh, the industry faces. Uh, they were looking at, uh, uh, you know, things like, okay, what's the most, if you would say, challenging aspect if you're a nuclear fusion developer? So they had about 38 uh, p- companies participate, and there were some companies who even failed to respond which is of course not a surprise given they don't want to disclose a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the most interesting part for me was that uh, pre-2030, which is when companies see themselves actually pushing the commercialization of fusion to the next stage, feel that, uh, you know, it, it's more challenging to get a net energy gain in fusion um, more than, you know, facing an integrated systems engineering challenge. So, to give hmm. some context to our listeners who don't understand how fusion works. Uh, you have this reactor.
0: Fusion works. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm confident only the most brilliant people listen to this podcast, but yeah, but just in case.
2: Yeah. So you have this, you know, fuel is injected into this reactor core. This fuel is, you know, combusted produces heat, this heat produces steam. Uh, but you need to, you know, you have so many other aspects, uh, with the heat itself because you know your essentially fusion reactions take place at millions of degrees of kelvin celsius you know at that point it doesn't matter what units you use it's just very very hot uh, and so uh, you know it's about maintaining those plasma conditions or those fusion conditions as long as possible and and sustaining them so that you can actually extract the energy that's being produced now for me personally speaking because of these challenges the systems engineering aspect is tougher i think you can still get a net energy gain of whatever is required but maybe for a nanosecond or a millisecond for durations that frankly do not you know make any sense to the industry or to us but i think it is possible but sustaining those uh, conditions are the challenge for me um, maybe you see that differently uh, or maybe the fusion no, industry no. does but
0: i mean i i think the systems engineering challenges are always sort of under uh, underrepresented or underappreciated by startups by early stage developers. We see that all the time, especially in materials, um, you know, just like so many people fail to anticipate all the logistics necessary to do any of these circular sustainable things. And, uh, so I I think it's going to be a big uh, wake up call in maybe a decade (laughs) for people. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I think it's not even... I mean, I don't even think a decade is necessary. I think most of these Fusion startups have deadlines for 2027. So Mm -hmm. I think within the next five years, we will know whether Fusion is actually going to impact the energy transition or not. Yeah. So...
0: And I think that, you know, we're... Our next segment is with Craig Wood, and he's the CEO of a concentrated solar power startup that like you sort of mentioned has been grappling with a lot of these engineering challenges and really sort of there's this very basic or more simple implementation of the technology that actually works quite well and has been deployed in a lot of different places but the the big promise of the technology uh, has been in a lot of ways stymied by these sorts of engineering challenges so you know, not to peel back the layers, but we, we have a really interesting conversation coming up in the second half to to kind of dig more into that in, in, in a real sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and infusion is going to be, you know, if it ever succeeds, is going to be very much like CSP or, or a lot of renewable technologies. It's very high upfront capital costs to to get it started, but relatively compared to fossil fuels, relatively low operating costs. So you're going to see the, uh, the the sensitivity to things like interest rates, which are obviously much higher mm-hmm. now than they've been for a lot of the past, you know, decade plus. Um, that's going to uh, affect a lot of those. And you know, if fusion interest rates right now is the least of their worries, right? But uh, <laughs> yeah. once they, once they get to that point, that's the <laughs> yeah. of, of actually, you know, if if and when they actually solve all these these engineering challenges to to get it scaled up, that's that's the kind of dynamic that they're going to face. So I think that conversation will be sort of illuminating for that as well.
0: Yeah, we should definitely get a Fusion person, a Fusion CEO on the startup and ask them about interest rates. I think that would be (laughs) extremely, (laughs) extremely good use of their time. (laughs) Well, look, when that happens, you'll hear about it here first on the Innovation Matters Podcast. So now we're going to head to our interview with Craig Wood. We're back now with our guest, Craig Wood the CEO of Vast Energy. Craig is a pretty experienced leader. He's done a lot of things. The company, uh, he joined Vast in 2015. They are an Australia-based company, and they're working on a really interesting type of energy technology that is concentrated solar power. Concentrated solar has a really long history. I think the first examples of it actually date to the 1800s. But it's been a technology that's had kind of a changing role within the future of the energy transition. So we've got Craig on today to talk to us about it, how it works, what it does, and really what the future holds for concentrated solar power. Craig, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks very much for the opportunity, Anthony. Great to speak with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So can you start by just giving us a little background about VAST and yourself and maybe a little bit on the history of CSP as well?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, Vast, as you mentioned, is an Australian company that's been around for over 13 years. Um, pretty early on, the founders of our business realized that uh, PV was going to become very cheap, um, but that the, the challenge would be dispatchability, basically how to take uh, energy, particularly from the sun uh, that arrives during the day and make that available overnight. Um, when you go and look at, what you can use to make dispatchable energy at scale, there are really only two options uh, that, that emerge. One of those is pumped hydro. And if you're in a place that's suitable for that, um, then absolutely that's an important part of the transition. The other option is concentrating solar thermal power. Um, and that's that's really the technology of choice um, if you're in hot, dry climates. So um, as I said our our founders in our business realised that um, and we really spent the first 10 years in business developing uh, what we believe to be the world's best concentrating solar thermal technology. Um, Ultimately that uh, technology was awarded the International Energy Agency's Technical Innovation Award in 2019 uh, which was a a very nice end to a decade of tech development Uh, and really since then we've been uh, spending our time developing projects, initially in Australia, but increasingly looking at offshore markets uh, to deploy our technology at utility scale and really start making a difference in the transition.
0: So, Craig, you you touched on something there, which is the the thermal aspect of concentrated solar power that I think is really important, because for us, the question of heat has come up so much in the last year to 18 months as... This sort of unsolved problem of decarbonization in, in the energy sector. Before we get into that though, you know, you mentioned this decade of tech development. And I mean, there were a number of CSP efforts, you know, as far back in the US in 2010. There were a lot of people trying to develop CSP at that time. Why did it fail? What's different about your technology that makes it positioned to succeed now?
3: Yeah, look, it's an excellent question. And actually, the history, um, particularly in the US, goes back to the 80s. There's been, we, we sort of look at um, our technology as a third generation of CSP, that the first generation initially in the US in the 80s was what's called parabolic trough systems. They were a, a modular design that used um, large parabola-shaped mirrors that, that basically tracked the sun east to west um, to gather energy from the sun. And then they stored that energy um, in the form of heat uh, in molten salt. Um, that technology is well proven. Um, you know, in the, in the 2010s, there was um, many, many gigawatts of it built in Spain, for example. Um, and really, at the moment, if you, if you walk around the world, anywhere where it's hot and sunny, you see parabolic trough technology deployed to the tune of about uh, six and a half gigawatts in total. Um, the modularity of that tech was terrific. The bankability is great. Uh, The only real limitation with the technology um, was temperature. And uh, the the reason for that was the fluid that the technology used to gather the energy from the sun was a a mineral oil um, and was limited to 400 degrees Celsius. And once you take that heat at 400C, put it into some storage and then use it to create steam to spin a turbine, ultimately you end up with a relatively inefficient power cycle. And so you end up with, uh, at the end of the day, electrons that are quite expensive. What people tried to do was to simplify things and move to what are called central tower designs, generation two of the technology. Um, They did away with the mineral oil. So they just used the salt for both storage as well as from energy gathering from the sun. Uh, And what that allowed was um, an increase in the temperature up to 550 degrees Celsius in the storage which meant that power cycles could be run at 538 Celsius. Um, and that's, that starts to become an efficient um, steam cycle. So those plants, they're the current state of the art. They're of, uh, a plant just recently been commissioned in Dubai. The, the Chinese are building a number of these projects. Um, as you mentioned, there, are, there were some projects that were built in the early 2010s in the US um, uh, of this sort. Uh, and and so that's where, that's where the world is at at the moment. Um, The challenge with that technology is that there have been significant availability issues. In short, the the problem is that the sun, because it's so concentrated, when you have clouds that come and go, you can get very large changes in the solar flux very quickly. Um, And at a fundamental level, the salt is, um, it's an excellent storage medium, but it's actually not particularly good as a heat transfer medium because um, its thermal conductivity is relatively limited. Uh, And ultimately, that that mismatch between um, the very rapid flux changes and the ability of the system to respond um, has led to uh, equipment failures that have taken those plants offline for extended periods of time. Uh, What we've done with our technology is is essentially combine the best of um, V1 and V2 to create a new V3 of the technology. So our system is actually modular. Uh, And we use a fluid, um, a third fluid. So we have a a separate heat transfer fluid. And in our case, we've opted to use uh, liquid sodium metal. So elemental sodium in the liquid state. Um, We use the sodium to link the solar receivers together. uh, And that allows us to have, as I said, that modular front end. Um, But the other important thing that we've done is created a system that allows us to have high concentration factors of the tower morphology. So we call it a modular tower CSP system um, and it's really the the sodium uh, as the heat transfer fluid that enables that system to work well. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sodium uh, is a it's a quite a reactive element. Um, Many people might remember their high school science when you drop sodium into water Um, the, yeah. the reality is, um, whilst it's reactive, it's in fact, um, it's very easy to use and to and to operate safely um, in an industrial setting. Certainly, if you compare it to the mineral oil that's already used in six and a half gigawatts of CSP plants, it's materially easier than that. Um, and, you know, as, as another comparison point, if you had a, a sodium fire and a diesel fire, uh, the diesel fire would burn four times as quickly and produce four times as much energy. So sodium has this bad reputation, um, but the reality is it's, it's really quite undeserved. Um, the other thing to note about sodium is that it has been used as a heat transfer fluid uh, in the nuclear industry for more than seven decades. And so a lot of the work that we've done in designing our system um, to be right spec for uh, a renewable application has been standing on the shoulders um, of the the work that's been done over many decades by some very clever people in the global nuclear industry. So uh, it's, as I said, it's the sodium that's important. Um, The sodium, you know, it has a bad reputation, but between the nuclear work and then also um, the demonstration plant that we have built, operated for nearly three years and decommissioned, uh, we're quite confident that the system will deliver the benefits uh, that we expect.
2: Yeah, uh, Craig, it's interesting you talk about sodium and, you know, innovations in CSP. Uh, This is, of course, the Innovation Matters podcast. And as you mentioned, if you go talk to any person about CSP, the the first thing that comes to their mind is a solar tower that occupies a large amount of area. Uh, You know, you have a large solar field with a very tall tower in the middle of it. Um, So my question to you is sort of, what are you seeing in terms of innovations in csp from other developers as well uh is it just you know solely focused on the heat transfer medium or are you seeing maybe uh uh you know rewinding the clock and sort of going back to uh parabolic troughs or other modular systems and and where do you see innovations in csp going in the future
3: that's an excellent question kartik we could be here for hours gotta be careful um <laughs> Look at its core. CSP is relatively straightforward. You effectively taking mirrors in some configuration, um, concentrating the sun's energy, gathering and storing that as heat. What What's really occurring in terms of the innovation are variations on how you do that at each of those stages. So a good example would be our use of sodium on the front end of the plant to enable that modular tower morphology. Um, there are there are certain um, Uh, programs that are operating around the world that are trying to push um, the the power cycle into being a supercritical CO2 power cycle, that has uh, a couple of uh, theoretical advantages. Number one, at uh, high temperatures, those power cycles become extremely efficient. So to give you some numbers, um, our utility scale plants are somewhere between 42 and 45% efficient on the steam cycle. Um, by the time you put a a big SCO2 power cycle in, you might be able to push that up to 55 uh, plus percent. So that's a material increase um, in what ends up being the largest uh, inefficiency in the CSP system. Uh, People are also, in order to try and support higher temperature operation in SCO2 turbines, people are working on um, what are called particle receiver and storage systems. So instead of using liquids, in our case, sodium and, and molten salt, People are trying to use um, uh, small engineered particles, um, you know, typically ceramics, that they that they fall as a curtain through the, the sunbeam, um, and then they're able to store those. Uh, that A lot of that work has been going on for many years in laboratories, and there are starting to be demonstration projects that are emerging, um, but that's still some years off being commercially mature. Um, so there, there's a variety of, of different options that people are pursuing. Um, The other thing that I think is interesting uh, in CSP, and and perhaps this is a a nice lead into a discussion about some of the more thermally driven aspects, but um, CSP works best in hot, sunny places. So if in simple terms, you get your Google Maps, uh, or in fact, whichever mapping software you like, uh, put it on satellite view and look at the world, anywhere that's orange, red or yellow, by and large is suitable for CSP. Anywhere that's green, blue, or white uh, is typically not suitable for CSP. Um, In the places where CSP is suitable, it is a clear winner. There is is actually no other primary energy source that gets close apart from obviously PV and wind, but they're intermittent and so they offer, they fulfil a different role in the energy stack. By contrast, if you go to somewhere that is green, CSP will typically not be the cheapest form of generation. Um, but what we can do with CSP is actually um, dispense with the, the solar collector piece, so, so essentially put the mirrors in the bin, um, and then uh, what we're able to do instead is actually um, put a um, basically a giant heater um, on, on the salt tank that allows excess renewable energy from, let's say, PV and wind that might have been overbuilt in a particular location to be converted into thermal energy and stored in a salt. So this this idea of resistive heating of the salt um, is something that a number of organisations around the world are working on, particularly um, in places where you might have excess uh, intermittent renewable generation that's been built, uh, but no no effective way to store that for long durations. Uh, I I should say, obviously, Batteries are great. We love batteries. We're, in fact, developing a 140 yeah. <laughs> battery project in Australia.
0: <laughs> I was just going to ask you about that because yeah, I but, think but there's the a kind of is,
3: Yeah, the, the reality is batteries are only good for, you know, two to four hours. After that, they, they, there are no economies of scale in batteries. They're just much more expensive because there's nothing that drives the cost down. You know, if you want eight hours of battery storage, you buy two times four hours of battery storage. By contrast, solar thermal and pumped hydro, for that matter, have very significant scale economies. And so, in terms of the energy mix and the transition, if you're looking for something that fills that 12 to 20 hours of storage requirement, basically the overnight energy once the thermal generation drops out, um, that's the role that CSP and Pumped Hydro will play. So again, to repeat, we, we are fans of batteries. They absolutely have a role, um, but we actually don't view them as particularly competitive uh, to the product that we have.
0: I I think that's an important point because so many – it's easy to look at the history of CSP. And you mentioned there was this sort of time where the costs of solar PV dropped precipitously. And that forced a sort of, I think, change or a pivot in how the CSP developers position themselves. And one of the things we've heard, and Kartik, I know you were talking about this, is what if battery storage – um, you know, again, just really precipitously drops in terms of the cost. And it seems like you're making the argument that it's it's really a different category of, you know, demand response, really a different category of, of storage altogether.
3: Look, I'm not a battery expert. And if some um, magical battery chemistry or, or configuration for the anodes and the cathodes emerges, that's very low cost. Then frankly, that'd be great for all of us. Um, the, what you tend to find though um, is that you know chemistry physics and economics really haven't changed very much um, for quite a long time with a few exceptions Um, and you know the the reality is a lot of the battery um, options that are being explored um, have been around for a very long time and the progress is um, incremental not necessarily revolutionary the other thing that's important to understand is that CSP, when done properly, you know, in the right locations at the right scale, is extremely cheap. Um, you know, so that it's those scale economies. Once you start building plants north of at least north of 100 megawatts, but typically you know, two to 250 megawatts, um, you get very cheap energy because the ingredients, you know, the, the the raw materials to make those plants are actually relatively inexpensive. We're talking about Yes, there's some stainless steels, but a lot of it's, you know, glass, insulation, it's pretty low-tech stuff um, when you compare it to some of the more exotic requirements for, for PV and batteries. So um, I'm, I'm not a futurist, um, but I have spent quite a lot of time looking at the underlying drives of the technologies. Uh, and, you know, there's a reason why we continue to prosecute the case for CSP or particularly for thermal storage in those long-duration applications.
2: Um, yeah, um, looking at the long duration aspect as well as you said, you know, none of us on this call are battery experts, but uh, we are also seeing a lot of interest in you know, redox flow batteries and you know these next generation chemistries that could maybe um, you know economically trump CSP. Uh, my question was more so down to um, the the energy density part of of CSP because now I know this might be a touchy topic, maybe in Australia to talk about nuclear, but uh, I know that a lot of interest in nuclear, um, you know, has come up recently because of what, what you know incidents in Ukraine and 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 you know in gas prices and and whatnot, which is of course another uh, a whole other discussion. But do you see sort of nuclear coming back up? I, I know Australia is still anti-nuclear, uh, but do you see that sort of trend changing and maybe you know also dent efforts in CSP? Because Just because of its energy density, you know?
3: Um, so I do see nuclear playing an important role, um, not necessarily because of its energy density. So if, you know, we have the good fortune here in Australia of having really substantial um, solar, wind, um, you know, mineral resources, we've got basically, not to be too blunt, but we don't need nuclear because we've got many... Other less expensive sources of energy, um, and that's that's I think the the important distinction. If I contrast, um, you know, somewhere like Australia to let's say one of the Southeast Asian nations where there's a lot less land, where the renewable resources are not as good. Obviously, there still needs to be significant energy um, provision, and in a world where you are fossil free. Um, ice, I believe there's it's really only a couple of options. You're either importing fuels in much the same way as a lot of those economies currently do. I think over time, obviously, that'll move to you know, hydrogen and derivatives. Um, personal view is I think there'll actually be quite a bit of uh, gas that gets burned in the meantime. Um, or it's nuclear or it's a combination of both. And so the place where um, where I believe nuclear will have a renaissance is in, a lot of those um, uh, markets where there's not an abundance of renewable resources, uh, but there's still obviously energy security requirements. Um, The other thing about nuclear that's interesting is obviously the ability to generate um, thermal energy. Um, And Anthony, I think you mentioned it in your introduction, there's a real issue that I think people are only just starting to wake up to around how we actually provide um, green heat um, for industrial processes and increasingly for the emergence of the fuels industry. And so that's the other place where I think nuclear may have a role, albeit um, it is still more expensive than what we're able to do from Sunshine.
0: Yeah, so that's a good segue. I mean, we've seen companies like Dow in the chemical space invest in nuclear with the ostensible purpose of creating, among other things, high temperature steam for processes like steam cracking. So how do you see... Something like CSP playing and competing there, I mean, there is, of course, a geographical limitation, as you mentioned, but there is plenty of oil and chemical production in the Middle East, which is also a place where there's been historically plenty of uh, deployment of CSP. So is there an opportunity in terms of the right sizes and scales to bring CSP to those types of high temperature uh, applications?
3: Um, so in a word, yes, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be high temperature applications. So, um, if you think about most chemical processes, what you're in essence doing is providing energy, um, ideally in the cheapest way possible. Uh, Historically, that's been done by more often than not burning fossil fuels. And that allows you to get to the required temperatures. Um, we're working on a couple of things with some partners, uh, where we're looking at using, CSP, we store heat at um, 550 Celsius, but even if you need heat that's a higher temperature than that, um, there are options to preheat up to 550 and then use electricity to finish the rest of the job. Um, What we find when we look at the economics of those opportunities is that because we're able to produce very cheap heat, it actually makes sense to maximise the amount of preheating that's able to be done um, using the CSP systems because it just ends up with cheaper products at the end of the day. So um, do we see opportunities? Absolutely, we do. I think the um, one of the big limitations is, um, well, you can either view it as the geographic limitation of CSP, i.e. our energy is cheapest when we're in the desert, um, but there's another thing that plays into it, which is a lot of these existing facilities um, that people are very keen to continue to use for obvious reasons, you know, skilled workforces, um, environmental uh-huh. cleanup liabilities, all of those things, um, mm-hmm. a lot of those are not in places that are um, suitable for the deployment of CSP. Um, we are currently working on one project with a, a major um, FMC, global FMCG company Uh, where we're in fact retrofitting um, using a a parabolic trough technology in direct steam. So for various reasons, it wasn't appropriate to use the VAR system. But we're working with them to to install a CSP system to displace in the order of 51% of their gas. Now, that'll be a terrific deployment, but it's quite uncommon to find the combination of solar resource, available land and a brownfield application where that can make sense. Um, so in our view, um, CSP will play a role in process heat, but we think it will be more often than not on new build opportunities. Um, and mm. we're working on a number of those, uh, particularly where we're able to provide heat on a continuous or nearly continuous basis, plus dispatchable electricity that's then able to complement uh, PV and wind and batteries um, in in larger off-grid systems
2: yeah um and it's interesting you you talk about um, you know uh, even new build opportunities uh, my question was more so down to the economics of it so when do you see that tipping point where csp for heat uh, becomes cheaper than um, incumbent sources for heat um, or 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 to put it this way uh, do you see csp or, or by when do you see csp becoming cheaper than let's say, burning fossil fuel when combined with carbon capture?
3: Uh, Kartik, it is today. So, um, you know, if if you go back 12 months when the the fossil fuel price spiked because of the Ukraine situation, CSP Mm -hmm. was a complete no-brainer. With prices where they are today, even without carbon priced or sequestered, um, CSP is still in this application that we're looking at uh, in Australia is still going to be cheaper than burning gas. Um, if you look at situations where the solar resource is better, and we've got a couple of these that we're developing at the moment here in Australia, um, CSP is materially cheaper than gas at virtually any price, um, where you've got situations where the sunshine is very good. So um, the the limitation I think on, on the deployment of CSP um, really has been it's almost knowledge I'd say at this point Um, you know the existing technologies um, trough technologies the vast system they're proven Uh, it just comes down to people actually um, changing the way they think about their industrial system uh, because the reality is there are significant upfront capex requirements in any renewable technology but those are paid back over time because you don't have to buy fuel um, to run the system over the years so um, it's it's really, I, I think, more of a deployment question. Um, that said, if you start pricing carbon or um, or sequestering um, and putting the cost of that on the users of the fossil fuels, um, CSP will will be a no-brainer. Um, so it's, that's the situation at the moment.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, Craig, it's only for us to thank you uh, for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us on CSP. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure you're going to be hearing more from us about this topic as we go forward. And if big changes do happen, we get the uh, the magical breakthrough battery that that Craig mentioned. But uh, thanks again so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks very much, Anthony. Yep. Thanks, Patrick. So great to speak.
2: Yeah, great, great to speak. And uh, I wish Australia good luck in the ashes. <laughs>
3: Thank you. Only one match to go. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: (laughs) Any UK listeners of this podcast will be truly, I think, uh, truly devastated. We'll leave it there. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. For more, visit www.luxresearchinc.com.